Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast where murder and family meet as we explore the family tree of a killer. Welcome back, everybody, to Murderous Roots. Well, welcome back, everybody, to Murderous Roots. And with you today, of course, is me. I'm Denise Gilhart, a genealogist obsessed with true crime and my partner in crime. Zelda, hello. And I'm just here because i am got nothing better to do. I mean, you know. <laughs> and you're fabulous. I, I provide no serious value to this. But you other add the I, humor I'm, to the program. I make sure we have fun while we do this. That's, yes. I'm the, the, fun, the fun master, the fun mistress, the, the fun queen. That's it. Yeah. I'm the fun queen. You are a fun queen. I mean, Thank that you. came out weird. <laughs> You know, actually, that would be a lovely title anyway. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll go with it. <laughs> oh, my God. What are you up to? Oh, we'll my gosh. Nonsense. Well, today I've been in meetings. <laughs> mm. So today um, is the start of the international. Wait, I'm going to get this wrong. I know it. I4GG. I think it's a investigative a geneal- genetic genealogy conference, basically. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's being How's held it by C.C. Moore. And it's Ooh. in San Diego. And Ooh. I'm not in San Diego. I'm doing this all virtual from home. And it's been quite a day of learning, really great talks from people. And, you know, it's been fabulous. And I happen to see on the screen. So basically how it's being done is it's like you're at a table in the room. So you see all the tables in front of you and where people are sitting and you're just seeing the speakers like everybody else who's there seeing the speakers, which I gotta tell you, I prefer to like roots tech granted wasn't held in person, but you know, you just saw everybody on a computer screen. This kind of felt like, Ooh, I'm part of this. <laughs> oh, nice. And I saw a friend of the show there. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. She was, uh, she was talking to, uh, to some people at the table. I'm like, is that Julie? <laughs> oh wow so i saw julie dixon jackson from cut off jeans and she was talking and so i i did a quick screen grab and sent it to her and she goes Uh omg (laughs) that's hilarious cute oh my gosh because i'm like is this you (laughs) that's so cute and so i have another day of it tomorrow and um i'm learning a lot so that's fabulous and yeah, I'm enjoying that, actually. That's really cool. Did you have any insights so far that it like, oh, that's an interesting approach? And, and not in terms of approach, but trying to, there's, so that they have a chat function. And so I'm getting to chat with some other people who are into this as well and trying to learn how I can take a step into it, learning about some tools that they okay. do use. And so wanting that opportunity, because, you know, Eventually, I would love to do the forensic component, um, working with with like a CC more. I joke on here like CC hire me, but it's kind of not a joke either. Um, I would love to get to where I can do that. But they usually want somebody who has experience building and finding people before you get to that forensic level. 
And so I, I get that, but it's like, how do I get this experience? I got, you know, one. <laughs> so trying to yeah. figure those things out and, you know, it's, it's been mm-hmm. interesting and yeah, I'm enjoying this. I hope I can go to it next year, but we'll see. Oh my gosh. Maybe we'll have to do something to raise money for you to go because <laughs> that would be really amazing for you to go. I would love that. And then, you know, hopefully they'll give me another year of experiences I'm trying to build up. So that's what mm-hmm. I'm working on. And I was also finishing was writing up for today's show <laughs> while I was listening yeah. to part of it. Like, oh, that was interesting. Let me go back. <laughs> Let me tell you a secret. On every professional webinar I've ever been on, mm-hmm. everybody's still doing their work while they're listening. I mean, it oh. is, I can look around the room at other people on the webinar that I'm on, and everybody's kind of like, they're listening and they're you know, paying attention, but then you can get done some of these tasks that you don't have to think too hard about. Yeah, I mean, I do have to think a little bit about what I'm doing here, but I knew what I was putting in. So it wasn't like I was going into it like, Oh, what am I going to (laughs) do? I just had to finish Uh what I had started. But I got all that done and had an afternoon just to go, okay, what can I'll just listen? (laughs) Wow, that's so weird. That's so cool. Oh, I'm so glad you got to participate this year. That's great. Well, and I am excited about today's show because yeah, it kind of takes me home, but not home. You know what I mean? Because I, I did live in this town for a while, but not for very long. But my whole family's from there, and it's come up. But there's a TV show out right now called The Thing About Pam with Renee, Renee Zellweger. And I haven't seen it yet. I was going to wait until after all this. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Same here. I'm like, I didn't want to get my like biases ahead of time. Right. You know, but yeah, I when you, I have to tell you, when you said we're going to do Pamela Hupp, mm-hmm. I said, who? <laughs> you do who that a this? lot, though. <laughs> what? I do. This is true. I am not dialed into the universe of true crime. Yeah. You know, and, and it really is shameful that I do a true crime podcast with you. But you're learning with I am everybody learning else. And growing. I'm learning and growing all the time. So <laughs> it's um, and and I have to tell you that my biggest um, amount of time I spent putting together the story of it mm-hmm. was the edit button because yeah, there's because it's so recent. And, you know, and of course, I live here in Missouri. And so I'm recognizing all these places that they're talking about, mm-hmm. which was just crazy for me. It was crazy. Um and there's so much detail. So it's kind of like, okay, how do we tell a concise story so that the big picture is yeah. told? Throw in a couple scintillating details. Mm-hmm. But, you know, honestly, there's so much on the interwebs about this case that, right. um, you know, if you are if you want to know more, if you want to go in depth, th- besides a really cool TV show out now, <laughs> um, there's also lots on the internet. Yeah. And so, lots of podcasts that have covered it. To a degree, mm-hmm. we just put a different spin on it. That's it. And I can't wait to find out who this crazy lady's related to, because let me tell you, this is this I have to say is just something else, because yeah. in none of this have I seen where she has undergone any kind of psychological evaluation. No, I mean, it has to have happened at some point. One would think, although I don't know, because Missouri doesn't really pay like to pay for things like that. So yeah. Um, <laughs> Let's talk about mass murder. That's so much more fun. Okay. (laughs) So so we're talking about Pamela Hupp today. Woo! 
Well, she was born on October 10th, 1958, and her uh, maiden name is Pamela Marie Newman. Mm -hmm. She grew up in Delwood, Missouri, which is around St. Louis, and she attended Riverview Gardens High School because the one thing you need to know if you live in St. Louis is where you freaking went to high school. Yes, I I had that in my, (laughs) I had that in here in case she didn't bring up her high school because. (laughs) I know, right? It's like, okay, I mean, if you live in St. If you know, you know. This is if you know, you know. Yeah. If what you live in St. Louis, one of the very, or even if you're you're new to St. Louis, one of the first questions somebody will ask you is, oh, what high school did you go to? So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when I was like, well, I went to blah, blah, blah. We're, we've never heard of that high school. Oh, because that was in Indiana. Oh, I didn't know that you were trying to place me for my socioeconomic status. It's more than that, but yeah, that's part of it. Yeah, it's cultural and blah, blah, whatever. Anyway, (laughs) so she got married right out of high school um, to her high school sweetheart. They were married about six years and they had a child before filing for divorce. Yes. Um, She actually made claims that he wasn't paying child support on time, but he showed up in court and proved otherwise. So we have established that at a young age, she's a fucking liar. (laughs) Okay, so, but she moves on to her second marriage with a man named Mark Hupp, and they decide to relocate to Florida. Mm -hmm. Something about her said, I should live in Florida, you know, and you think about it, all the articles about Florida woman, Florida man, (laughs) I believe this would fit. I feel it would. (laughs) So she had her second child, and um, she actually held several jobs in the life insurance industry. And on two occasions, she was fired do you know why she was fired denise i can't you know what i don't because I, I i didn't get as deep into her actions you won't even you would you'll be shocked it was for forging signatures actually that does not shock me given what she if, yeah that was being sarcastic <laughs> yeah so they lived there in florida for a while before they decided this is too good to us so they were returning to missouri in 2001 mm-hmm which is wild because I lived in Missouri in 2001. Mm. I know. I was not Huge there in 2001. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. There wasn't a lot that going on. I was there when she was Other there before, this, though. Other than this, which was all the exciting things didn't happen until after I'd left. Anyway, she and Mark settled in O'Fallon, where she worked as an administrator for State Farm. Dun-dun-dun-dun. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait. That's a different one. Never mind. Um, <laughs> and... They flipped houses on the side. So I have a friend who, uh, a dear friend, actually, who works for State Farm in their legal department. Mm-hmm. And oh, so, I know of your course, dear I immediately, yes, you know, you know my dear friend. And I'm like, oh, you got to tell me all about this. And he's like, okay, so first of all, I had no handle on any of that. <laughs> and I couldn't tell you if I did. And I'm like, oh, I hate the fact you take your duty so seriously. But yeah, he would never tell me anything. No. He literally, he's one of those people who literally would rather die then first of all, doing something he didn't want to do, but two, <laughs> telling, uh, telling, you know, breaking a promise in that sort of, you know, if he's supposed to keep his mouth shut about something, he will keep his mouth shut. Mm-hmm. It's exasperating. Anyway, so she was flipping houses on the side, but it was as an administrator for State Farm that she sparked up a friendship with Betsy Faria, one of her co-workers and wife to Russ Faria. Mm-hmm. Betsy also had two daughters from a previous relationship. So they both have two kids. There's a lot they can bond over. By 2010, Hupp had stopped working and was claiming disability benefits for back, leg, and neck pain. I find this ironic when you think about what she does later. But anyway, you know, she's, I have yeah. too much pain in my body and, and she causes so much pain with one to other people's bodies. Anyway, in 2011, 
Hup and Betsy Faria, who by this point had been diagnosed terminally ill with cancer, reportedly collected money for a family also impacted by cancer. Fox 2 News, and I hate giving Fox any credit for anything. <laughs> it's a local station, though, so that's a little different. It is. It's a local station. This is true. That um, the family didn't know about the collection. Information was presented to the Lincoln County authorities in 2014, but was not investigated further. Lincoln County, what the hell? Mm-hmm. So there was no evidence to suggest Faria knew the fundraiser was questionable, with her friends recalling that she was excited to be helping a struggling family, even though she herself was dying. One of them, Kathleen Meyer, said this is going to be a legacy for her to leave behind something like this in her memory. We know now it's very likely that Pam Hupp just kept all of that money that they had collected for that family. Oh, yeah. However, this has not been resolved because, of course, Lincoln County's doing, you know, jack shit about it. So, but still, in 2011, December 22nd, 2011 to be exact, days before her death and unbeknownst to her family, Betsy Faria changed the sole beneficiary of her $150,000 State Farm life insurance policy Mm -hmm. from her husband... To Pam Hupp. Now, I have so many questions about this because, you know, Denise, I used to work in insurance, you know, back when I was first starting out. I did not know that. And I won't. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I have. I've had a lot of jobs and I actually really enjoyed that one. But, you know, I had to go be a lawyer after that. Yeah. Anyway, point of all this is that I've never seen a case where a married spouse is allowed to change a beneficiary on a life insurance policy without permission from their spouse. Because you have marital rights, you know, with life insurance policies, bank accounts, things like that. So I'm like, how was she able to even do that? (laughs) You know, now I haven't seen anything where it's been alleged that she, you know, that it was forged. Mm-hmm. This might be coming later, you know, because this is obviously there's so many cases that are still ongoing with this. But, you know, as far as the criminal activity is concerned, it seems like that they, that ship has sailed. So I'm just like, how did this even happen? So, right. okay, I'm off my soapbox now. Five days later, on December 27th, 2011, Faria underwent chemotherapy at the Alvin J. Seitman Cancer Center. And pay attention, because this is important. She then (laughs) visited her mother's house, after which she was driven home by Hup, the last confirmed person to have seen her alive. Mm. This is important. So Betsy Faria had originally been scheduled to be driven home by her husband, Russ, or stay with her mom. But then Hup just shows up at her mom's house and is like, I'm going to drive you home. I am so going to drive you home. So she kind of just insisted on it. So then Hup claimed that she had dropped Faria off at approximately 7 p.m. At approximately 7.21 p.m., a call to Betsy from one of her daughters went unanswered. Russ Faria, meanwhile, was hanging out at his friend Michael Corbett's house, watching movies with some friends and from six till about nine. Then he drove to an Arby's, which, you know, you got to say those curly fries are absolutely on, on fleek, as the kids might say, <laughs> in Lake St. Louis before returning home. Okay. Then at 940, Russ called 911 saying he'd returned to his home to find his wife had killed herself. 
So he makes an hysterical 911 call. My wife killed herself. And apparently she had threatened suicide before. And so that was the conclusion he immediately jumped to. Oh. So Betsy had been stabbed, though, over 55 times with her wrist cut to the bone and a serrated kitchen knife left lodged in her neck. Mm. A second knife was found under a pillow on the couch she was lying on. First responders arrived within 10 minutes and concluded that Betsy Faria had been dead for at least an hour and likely longer. Faria's time of death was later reported as being between 7.20 p.m. and 7.41 p.m. Now, her daughters tried to get a hold of her at 7.21 p.m. So can you imagine you're dying and you hear the phone ring? So her daughters, I mean... Yeah. Had to know something was up. You know, you get that creepy feeling that, hey, I better call home. Right. So if you ever get a creepy feeling, you should call home. Just call home. Yeah. You should do that. Definitely. So then do mainly to confirmation bias, possible police corruption, or maybe ineptitude, and the willingness of Pam Hupp to point fingers at other people, Betsy's husband, Russ Faria, was arrested and eventually convicted of the murder of his wife. But he maintained his innocence from the get-go. So then while Russ is in prison, Hupp's kind of a busy lady. So we're going to talk about her mom for half a second. Shirley Mae Newman, Hupp's mother, was a widow since 2000, was living alone in a third floor apartment in the Lakeview Park Independent Senior Living Community in Fenton, Missouri, suffering from dementia and arthritis. She spent the night of October 29th, 2013 with Hupp following a hospital visit. At approximately 5 p.m. on October 30th, so the next day, mm-hmm. 2013, Hupp dropped Newman off at her apartment, instructing staff not to expect her for dinner that evening or breakfast the following day. A housekeeper found Newman dead beneath the balcony of her home at 2.30 p.m. the next day. The aluminum balcony railing was broken. Following a police investigation, Assistant Medical Examiner Raj Nanduri concluded that she had died from blunt force trauma to the chest, resulting from an accidental fall. An autopsy found that she had 0.84 micrograms of the sedative zolpidem in her blood over eight times the expected concentration for someone having taken a normal dose. Uh, Suspicious. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. The next month, the Lincoln County Sheriff's Office, because they're just so on top of things, received an anonymous note suggesting Hupp, the last person to have seen Newman alive, had murdered her mother for the life insurance. Hupp and her siblings each received approximately $120,000 of investments held by Newman, as well as sharing a $10,000 life insurance payout. Honestly, that life insurance payout just probably paid for the funeral. Yeah. But anyway... Earlier that year, prior to her mother's death, Hupp had been videotaped saying, my mom's worth half a million that I get when she dies. If I really wanted money, there's an easier way than trying to combat somebody that's physically stronger than me. Hmm. I saw that interview. (laughs) Yeah. Isn't that crazy? It was disturbing on so many levels. (laughs) Yeah. Like it's, oh my God. Yeah. The police reopened their investigation. So after interviewing the housekeeper who had found Newman's body and Newman's son, Michael, both of whom said Newman was unsteady, again concluded that the death was accidental. They did not interview Hupp. Okay. There's just so much wrong. So now I have to get, I know it's so crazy. And now I have to like give Fox credit again and it makes me mad. Okay. In 2014, 
Okay, so January 2014, Fox 2 KTVI partnered with the St. Louis Post-Dispatch to review the case. The next month, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch reported that Hupp had kept the $150,000 rather than put it into a trust for Faria's daughters. She had also contradicted herself during police interviews, such as initially claiming she had not entered the Faria house after driving her home, but later revising this account twice. The 911 operator who had taken Russ Faria's call believed he'd been genuinely hysterical. The article alleged that Askey, the prosecutor, had been in a relationship with Mike Lang, the then captain of investigations for the sheriff's office, and one of the investigating officers in the Betsy Faria murder case, as well as a prosecution witness. Hmm. Two members of the jury in Russ Faria's trial told the media that this information had been withheld. So, Faria appealed the conviction. In February 2015, the Missouri Court of Appeals sent the case back to the 45th Circuit Court for a hearing on a retrial. In June, 22nd Circuit Court Judge Stephen Omer granted a motion for the new bench trial based on the evidence that had emerged, and Faria was released on bond pending the trial. During the retrial, Faria was allowed to introduce evidence implicating Hupp as the perpetrator. CSI agent Amy Butner who had examined the crime scene, testified that she believed the slippers found in Russ's closet had not gotten bloodied by stepping in blood, but probably had been dipped. So somebody was planting evidence. Mm -hmm. During the trial, police officers disclosed that Hupp, who again was not called to testify, had claimed in interviews conducted in June that she and Betsy had been in a sexual relationship. Now... She hadn't said a word about that during any of the initial investigations. And suddenly a few years later, she's all like, hey, we were a thing. (laughs) Crazy. So Hupp also told police that she had remembered seeing Russ and another man in a car parked on a side street outside the Faria house as she drove Betsy home. Ah, hmm. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. That seems so strange. You would think that that would have been immediately on her mind. In the mm-hmm. initial investigation. Yeah. It's convenient. Like four years later? Yeah. Four years later, you think of it? Eh, that's a little weird. You would think that had she thought about it sometime in the previous four years, she would have been like, hey, here's another thing I remembered. But she did not do that. Mm-hmm. On November 7th, Fari's conviction was overturned and he was released from prison having served almost four years. Okay. So now we're excited he's out. Mm-hmm. But who did it then, right? Okay, well, we're going to, you know, jump ahead a couple of years. And I want to tell you about Louis Royce Gumpenberger. Ah, yes. So he was a resident of Union, Missouri. And unfortunately, he'd had a car crash in 2005. So he had a number of mental and physical disabilities after that. Well, on August 16th, 2016, shortly after noon, Gumpenberger died after Hupp shot him five times in her home in O'Fallon. Yeah, he was inside her home. She shot him five times. $900 was found on his body along with a note bearing instructions to kidnap Hupp, get Russ's money from Hupp at her bank and kill Hupp and to take Hupp back to house and get rid of her. Make it look like Russ's wife. Make sure knife is sticking out of neck. In return for a reward of $10,000. As Hupp had placed two calls to 911 shortly before the shooting to report a burglary in progress, the audio of the incident was recorded. Immediately after the shooting, Hupp voluntarily went to the O'Fallon Police Department. 
Her first words in the recorded interview were, do you know? Do you know? No, it's no, crazy. I don't. Please tell me. Is this going to be filmed? Because I always appear on the news with Chris Hayes. <gasps> I, I did know that and I forgot about it. Yeah. Crazy, crazy stuff. She went on to say she blamed Hayes' reporting for attracting threatening people. Like, oh my God, this woman's killing me. Like, literally. Actually, really metaphorically, because she did actually literally kill people. Anyway, right. Hupp claimed that Gumpenberger, armed with a knife, had jumped out of a car driven by another person into her driveway, accosted her while she sat in her sport utility vehicle in her garage, and demanded she drive to a bank to retrieve Russ's money. In quotes. Hupp claimed that she had knocked the knife out of Gumpenberger's hand and then fled into her house, shooting Gumpenberger in self-defense with a Ruger LCR she kept on her nightstand after he pursued her. Okay, when would she have made the 911 calls and all of that? I don't know. When would that have happened? It doesn't okay. sound possible. Mm-mm. She's getting bad at lying. She used to lie really well. Now she's sucking at it. What happened? <laughs> The St. Charles County prosecuting attorney and the O'Fallon chief of police theorized that Hupp had lured Gumpenberger to her home by presenting herself as a woman named Kathy and that she was a producer for the television program Dateline NBC and offering to pay him to reenact a 911 call, then shot him in order to implicate Rasfaria in an attempt on her life and take the heat off of her, planting the knife, the note and the money on his body. I'm like. That is some next level, crazy, she does not live in the same world as the rest of us shit. Right, right. Um, So Gumpenberger was believed to have been selected at random, right? Like she just picked this dude off the street. Oh, no. Now, apparently she had approached some other people with this who all turned her down. And um, they then went to the police once this all kind of hit the news. Anyway... Cell phone records showed that Hupp had been in Gumpenberger's neighborhood less than one hour before the shooting, contradicting her claim she had never met him before. Mm-hmm. On August 10th, 2016, a police report had been filed with the St. Charles County Police stating that a woman matching Hupp's description had approached O'Fallon resident Carol Alford, posing as Dateline NBC producer and offering her $1,000 to reenact a 911 call. Security camera footage showed that the woman in question had been driving Hupp's car. A second witness, Brent Charlton, informed the police that Hupp had approached him with a similar proposition. So literally, she kept going up to people till she found someone who bit. So police investigators found nine $100 bills in Gumpenberger's pocket. A tenth was found in Hupp's dresser, and it had a sequential serial number to four of the nine bills. Interesting. Yeah. So investigators also suggested that the knife had been purchased at Dollar Tree in O'Fallon alongside several other items in Hupp's house. The paper on which the note was found on Gumpenberger's body had been written was also thought to have been bought by Hupp. Mm -hmm. The knife in Hupp's car was found wedged between the passenger seat and the central console, which apparently is how Hupp just likes to store knives because the ones in her kitchen were similarly stored wedged between the stove and the counter. Would you ever have knives like that? I'm like, no, that just seems dangerous on so many levels. Right. A carpet swatch found by police appeared to have been positioned to protect a rug in Hupp's home from Gumpenberger's blood. Again, that it had been, you know, premeditated. Right. Police investigators were skeptical about Gumpenberger's disabilities following his accident would have allowed him to carry out the acts Hupp said he had. 
So this time they were a little more on top of things. So on August 23rd, 2016, Hupp was arrested and charged with first degree murder and armed criminal action. Upon being arrested, she asked to visit a bathroom where she used a ballpoint pen to stab her neck and wrists in an apparent suicide attempt. Bail was set at $2 million. On December 16th, the grand jury indicted Hupp on the charges. Hupp appeared in court on January 31st, 2017, pleading not guilty. In March, prosecutors stated they would seek the death penalty due to the apparently arbitrary choice of Gumpenberger as the victim. Hmm. And in August 2018, Hupp's trial date was set for June 2019. So instead of contesting the charges at trial, Hupp entered an Alfred guilty plea. Right. And of course, that waived her right to a jury trial. So for our longtime listeners, you will remember what an Alfred guilty plea is. It's not actually a guilty plea. What they're saying is, I am innocent. However, this evidence sure seems to be like a lot. And I'll probably get convicted anyway. So I'll go ahead and agree, save us all a trial, but I get a lesser sentence in, I get some, a lesser sentence for this. Right. So um, as a condition of her plea agreement, she just didn't face the death penalty. She was sentenced to life without parole in August, 2019. She's serving her sentence at the Chillicothe Correctional Center. In a phone call to her then-husband, Hub claimed she had pled guilty so her family would not have to witness an ugly trial. In June 2019, after Hupp entered an Alfred guilty plea to the murder of Lois Gumpenberger, Lincoln County Prosecutor Mike Wood announced that he would be reopening the Betsy Faria homicide investigation. In October 2019, Wood requested a case review by the Major Case Squad of Greater St. Louis. I did not even know St. Louis had a, uh, had a Major Case Squad. That feels just very... Very, like, I don't know, on top of things. Yep. Crazy. In August 2020, new Lincoln County Sheriff Rick Harrell said that the Betsy Faria case had inspired him to run for the job. And uh, there was a lot of, you know, babble at the time that people were not happy how the former sheriff had handled all of this and they wanted something new. So, yeah, which I would be, too, if I were them. Mm -hmm. In February 2021, so only like a year ago, Wood stated that the COVID-19 panic had slowed the investigation, but he expected significant announcements in the summer or fall. On July 8th, 2021, Hupp was interviewed in connection with the murder of Betsy Faria for the first time. So less than a year ago. Yeah. Before that happened, okay, at the time Hupp was just charged with the 2016 murder of Lois Gumpenberger, the St. Louis County Police Department reopened the investigation of the death of Hupp's mother, Shirley Newman. Mm -hmm. So Michael Newman, Shirley's son, Pam's brother, reiterated that he believed his mother's death was accidental. Right. Detective Matthew Levy attempted to get a subpoena for the location of Hupp's cell phone at the time of her mother's death, but was unsuccessful. Levy also attempted to organize forensic tests on the balcony railing at Missouri University. So that's not how the that's not their name, but okay. Missouri <laughs> University of Science and Technology. It's in Rolla. It used to be called the the Missouri School of Mines, you know. But anyway. It was um, called the University of Missouri Lake at Rolla when I was in school, so. I know. It keeps changing names. I know. I think it's University of Missouri Science and Technology Campus or something like that. Anyway, so the place where Newman had been living refused to provide a railing for testing, which seems curious. Interesting. Uh-huh. And a retired homicide detective suggested to Fox 2 KTVI that one of the vertical bars appeared to have been kicked out. I may know why they refused, but we'll get to that in a minute. Okay. 
So we're wrapping this up in the same case. Okay, we're talking about Newman now. We're not talking about Faria. We're not talking about uh, Gumpenberger. We are talking about Newman, her mother. Right. In November 2017, Mary Case, the chief medical examiner for St. Louis County, changed the manner of Newman's death from accidental to undetermined. Case stated, since Newman's death, many things have happened that involved the daughter. And so all of that investigation, including the one in Lincoln County and the one in St. Charles, became pertinent information. I was no longer willing to say it could be an accident. However, the full investigation into Newman's death was not reopened. Okay, so now we're back to the Faria case. On July mm-hmm. 12, 2021, Wood charged up with the first degree murder of Betsy Faria and with armed criminal action. Court documents filed by Wood asserted that Hupp murdered Faria for financial gain. Wood stated he would seek the death penalty for Hupp due to the heinousness and depravity of the crime. The prosecution alleges that Hupp repeatedly stabbed Faria while she was asleep on her sofa and weakened from her chemotherapy treatment, Mm. then removed Faria's socks and used them to spread blood around the house to try and give the impression of domestic violence before replacing them on Faria's feet. Court documents noted the following points. Hupp had been named the sole beneficiary on a $150,000 life insurance policy held by Faria days before the murder. Following Faria's death, she did not give any of the money from the policy to Faria's daughters, despite Faria's reported wishes. Mm-hmm. Hupp insisted on driving Faria home from her chemotherapy treatment, despite Faria already having transportation arranged and despite Hupp claiming to not be familiar with the Troy area. The position of Faria's body suggested she was murdered by someone she trusted. Hupp texted home to Faria's phone at 7.20 p.m., despite cell phone records showing that Hupp's cell phone was still in the vicinity of Faria's home at the time. Mm. So, Wood also stated he would be investigating potential prosecutorial misconduct in the original Faria murder investigation. Mm. Thank you. Please do. Yes. By the way, in September 2020, Hupp's husband, Mark Hupp, filed for divorce, describing their marriage as irretrievably broken. (laughs) Okay, I would think. Um, By March 2022, the couple was divorced. Let's see. Back in September 2020, Hupp filed a motion to vacate her conviction, claiming she was pressured to take the plea. And this is the Gumpenberger trial. It was denied the following March as untimely. What I find interesting is that apparently, though, Mark got to keep the house and the divorce and he's still living there in the house where the man was killed, which is nuts. So July 2021, Hupp entered a not guilty plea. On September 8th, 2021, the armed criminal action charge against Hupp was dismissed in the Faria case, of course. A preliminary hearing was scheduled for February 2022, but was delayed indefinitely after Hupp's public defender died of a heart attack. Well, I have to tell you, defending a person like Hupp probably would give me heart problems, too. Yeah. So, meanwhile, Hupp is in prison in Chillicothe and has a job helping other prisoners get their GEDs. I guess she's doing good now. <laughs> I, you know, they get paid for that. Oh, that like, okay. I mean, it's like 30 cents an hour, but still. Yeah. So those are the crazy machinations of Pamela Hupp, who, but she had used her powers for good, probably would have been a force for real good in this world. But instead, she killed three people. Yeah. Convicted of one, um, going through trial for the another and then has to live with the fact she fucking killed her own mother. Allegedly. Allegedly, yes. 
Oh my goodness. So what do you got for us, Denise? Cause this was just nuts. This was a, this was a roller coaster. I had so many thoughts when you were talking little things that I kind of missed. I, I thought this one I did look up at one point and I thought you might find it interesting about their house that Mark Tell lives me. in. So I did okay. a property record search in the county because uh-huh. you can do that, people, just so you know. Oh, yeah. It's all public records. And, and the owner of the house, bef- I guess it says previous owner. So before Mark was mm-hmm. H2 Partners LLC, which is an LLC created by Pamela and Mark. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And they bought it in 2015. And I found that very interesting. So they moved it out of their partnership into personal, into their personal. Yeah. Hands. Huh. But they moved it in 2017. So. That's really. Oh, you know why? Oh, okay. Because if they were, if it was within the partnership, then it would have been able to be seized mm-hmm. um, in lawsuits resulting from from her actions right but because he would be an innocent spouse if it's in both their names as people then he has a a statutory share right well there's a few themes to this uh my my turn um immigrant ancestors brick walls that's exciting and privilege what i ran into so many brick walls but we'll (laughs) we'll get there oh my gosh And, and privilege i would say and, you know, when I think about her behavior, it just seems to come up with so much privilege in her attitude mm-hmm. in general. Entitlement. Yes. Yeah. Which I find interesting, given her family dynamics. It's like she took after one side. Maybe I don't know more than another. I don't know. Um, some quick notes. Um, you talked about how she went to high school in Riverview Gardens and then mentioned the socioeconomic status. So for those who aren't in the know about St. Louis, when somebody tells you where they went to high school... It tells you where they lived. Now, people do it in two parts. They want to know, oh, well, maybe we have friends in common because I work with this person who went to this high school. That's part of it. The others kind of get an idea where you grew up. And back in the 70s, if you said Riverview Gardens, you know, it was kind of a dynamic neighborhood. It was mainly white, although there were some black people who did live in the neighborhood, but not a lot back then and all that. And Delwood is really right next to um, a community called Bell Fountain Neighbors. And I looked up Bell Fountain Neighbors. It was easier to get information than Delwood. But let's just say Delwood pretty much is the same as Bell Fountain is to this day. And it, by the way, it's spelled Bell Fontaine, but they call it Bell Fountain in St. Louis. So just so you know. There's a very cool cemetery up there, too. Yeah. If you're like into old cemeteries, mm-hmm. there's some really cool ones. Up and there's there. really some cool history in that area. But this is North St. Louis. And if you've heard about North St. Louis, <laughs> like years ago, you would have heard about Ferguson. And Ferguson is part of that general area. And some students go to Riverview Gardens today that live in Ferguson. Back in the 1970s, it was a fairly safe neighborhood, but the neighborhoods changed a lot, getting more and more crime ridden, especially in the last couple of decades. And I talked to um, a former police officer in the North City area, and he didn't have that as his beat per se, but he was very familiar. And he's like, it's just changed so much. And it's done the whole St. Louis thing of white flight over the years. And for those who don't know that term, 
And this is one I did hear about when I lived in St. Louis area was that, oh, when black people move in, white people move out because black people are going to drop the property value. What's really sad about that is they don't realize that part of the reason the property value drops is because they left. So it becomes this neighborhood that nobody wants us to be in. So then, yeah, don't point out the obvious though. Okay. Anyhow, so I was looking and according to Neighborhood Scouts, it has one of the highest crime rates in the United States today with a crime index of three out of 100. Oh my. And this means it's safer than only 3% of other towns in the country. In Missouri, you have a one in 184 chance of being a victim of a violent crime. In Bell Fountain and Delwood and other um, neighborhoods around that area, you have a one in 52 chance of being a victim of violent crime. Now the school, the high school lost its accreditation in 2007. Oh my God. But they did get it back. They worked hard and they got back in 2015 and was considered one of the top schools afterwards for the progress that they were making. Oh, good. So, I mean, the area is not all bad. I mean, there's a lot of good people who live there. (laughs) Housing is inexpensive and it just needs to come back. You know, it's one of those neighborhoods that's got a lot of history to it. And you just wish things would come back a little bit. Well, I mean, if we're going to talk about property and property values, I mean, redlining in St. Louis has historically been a problem and it continues to be a problem. Explain redlining to everybody. um, Oh, my gosh. Um, (sighs) (laughs) Informally, it's basically an informal way of of enforcing segregation. Mm When I lived in St. Louis, I was warned off of certain neighborhoods and encouraged to live in other neighborhoods. And um, I ended up living near where Kings Highway and Chippewa, which you're familiar with. Oh, South City. That's a very famous kind of, yeah, South City. Yeah. Well, and you know, at the time I was there, we had a lot of Bosnian refugees Mm -hmm. uh, because it was during the Bosnian crisis. So anyway, it it was an interesting neighborhood, but it is still a very segregated city. Yeah. And... The, the county is similar. So yeah. if you get out of the city and you get into like the near North County and anyway, and uh, the way black people have been treated in the city of St. Louis is just ungodly. If you look at the historical. Yeah. It's, it's, and of it's course, bad. part of, have we talked on this show about when St. Louis built Interstate 70 through black cemeteries? Did we talk no. about that on this show? Okay, I don't know if you knew about this, but back, oh God, when was it? The 80s? I want to say maybe the early 90s. They were building Interstate 70 and expanding it. And uh, they deliberately avoided white cemeteries. And they went, plowed right through black cemeteries. They relocated some of the bodies, but not all of them. Mm -hmm. And a lot of headstones are still there. So if you're driving along Interstate 70... Um, you can actually look over and see headstones right on in the grassy areas between the highway. I've seen that. I think it must have been like maybe the late seventies, early eighties, because I don't remember seventy changing from the eighties and nineties when I was there. Let me look really quick because the the only reason I knew about it is when I lived there, I worked for a place called Guardian Angel Settlement, mm-hmm. and one of the directors, her grandmother, had been. Um, buried in that cemetery and when they disinterred her she went to make sure that they first of all disinterred her and didn't just build the highway right over her right and that you know her body was treated with respect and she actually saw her mother her grandmother's body 
And oh. um, so she's never going to get over that one. Just the fact that they they did all of it. It's so awful. But okay, I'm looking up the article okay. right now. And, well, and it's I interesting because I to prove it to somebody. We got and it could have been the very early 80s because we got there and I started fifth grade in. Oh, gosh. When did I start fifth grade? <laughs> 1981. And then in 1982, I started um, middle school at Holman Middle School, and it's in a St. Louis suburb. And that's the year they started busing in kids from the inner city because they weren't, everything was so segregated. And two of my best friends were actually bussed in. I do remember some of the stuff going on at the time, but not all of it. Okay, there's actually a Wikipedia article on it. Oh, really? And it said that it was the late 1950s, 75 acres were claimed for Interstate 70, which bisected the cemetery's property and paved over graves. In 1972, an expansion to St. Louis Lambert International Airport claimed nine acres. In 1992, an expansion to St. Louis's light rail system, Metrolink, claimed more land. Ah, Light rail. Across these three projects, an estimated 12,000 to 13,600 uh, 13, bodies were disinterred and relocated, resulting in some families losing track of their ancestral graves. And they actually did pave over some graves, which they're not mentioning in this article. Yeah. But you can find in newspaper articles. Oh, that's awful. So, yeah, St. Louis has a lot to account for. Yeah, they do. And they we'll see if that ever happens. Mm-hmm. It would be nice if they did, but um, <laughs> sorry, I didn't mean to sidetrack us. Nope, but we hey, we're good at that. So this could be part, you know, part of this will probably get cut, <laughs> not the whole thing, but part of it will. <laughs> but anyhow, I was going to say with um the busing is that the high school that Pam happened to go to, and she had graduated in 1977, so it was I mean it was after she had graduated, but that high school did not have kids bust in. The school requested that they not have that because they already fit all the diverse needs. They had a 41% population of black students in 1981. So I found that interesting. I did find out who her high school sweetheart was. I found him. Ooh. I am not going to share his name because I am sure he's a good person and doesn't deserve that. But is he still alive? Yes. I was just curious. I had to. (laughs) It's one of those little. Ooh. They're not telling me who is it. And I, I figured it. I was able Does to figure it out. Does he still live in St. Louis? I believe so, yes. Wow. Yeah, we probably shouldn't rat him out then. And their daughter was Sarah, who has been mentioned, but I'm not going to say what her last name is now. But I noticed, I saw Pam's yearbook and in her senior notes, and she was cute. She just looked cute and happy. She was on the Palm Squad. Um. Oh my gosh. She was in the Pep Squad, the a Christian group and all sorts of things. But she said she wanted to attend UMSL and UMSL is the university of Missouri, St. Louis for those not in the know. They might. And now I know everything says they were married for six years, but I'm not so certain because I'm um, based on when they would have gotten married probably in 1977 because she, they got married because she was pregnant. Oh, and apparently that really disappointed her mother and her. And the, when she got married to Mark Hupp. Now, I could have the wrong marriage date for Mark and Pamela. I'm going to f- freely admit that. But Mark Hupp was from Jennings neighborhood in St. Louis, which isn't too far from where Pamela grew up, but they would have gone to different high schools. He played baseball for Umsel. 
and he was actually signed by the Texas Rangers in 1983. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, and I believe I found a marriage record for the couple in Hernando County, Florida, marrying in May 1984. Interesting. But her last name was different from the last name of her first husband, but everything else fit. It's not like Mark Hupp's a very common name. I'm just going to put it that way. So either she married again, or I have the wrong record, but my instinct's telling me that's them. And trust me, the the her married name to her first husband is so unique, <laughs> it would have stood out. So now Mark only played for one season of minor league ball for the Rangers, and he was in the Gulf Coast League. After he returned to St. Louis in 1984, they moved in with her parents, at least for a time back in Delwood, and they had a son in 1987. Mark continued to play baseball, though. He wasn't playing professionally, but he played for the St. Louis Printers Union from 1984 to 1987. Now, do you know about the Union Printers International Baseball League, Zelda? I know nothing about this. Do tell. I knew nothing about this either. And, you know, St. Louis is a big baseball town, huge. So there's Mm -hmm. all these amateur leagues everywhere. So I've just, I always tuned half of them out. <laughs> I mean, I high school, a lot of the guys would play with these leagues and stuff, but I didn't pay attention. But anyhow, so the St. Louis Printers Union Baseball Team was part of the Union Printers International Baseball League, the UPIBL. It was an amateur baseball league formed in 1908. Wow. Now, teams from various cities across the country and in Canada would play in an annual tournament. The last news report on a tournament that I was able to find was in 2013. So they were playing for at least 105 years. I have a question. Did you have to be in the printer's union to be on the baseball I was about to answer that question. Yes. So to be in the early years, to be on the team, you had to be a card-carrying member of the printer's union. Now, sometimes they might have a professional player who left briefly, and who joined the printer's union to play for the team. And then we'd quit the printer's union and go back mm-hmm. to playing professional baseball. That was known to actually happen. Um, it could be that they were out on an injury and were taking a break, whatever. But um, yeah, 1933 was the biggest year for the UPIBL with 14 teams. Wow. The original eight teams came from St. Louis, New York, Boston, Washington, D.C., Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, and Chicago. Sweet. And, you know, notice that all these teams are still big baseball cities to this day. Mm -hmm. Now, other teams formed over the years in Buffalo, Philadelphia, Denver, Annapolis, as well as Toronto, Hamilton, Canada, and Montreal, Canada. Interesting. Yeah. Now, as time went on, they... (laughs) They didn't have as many people joining the printer's union because computers took over. So they added a different union that could join in. I think it was um, something to do with computers and they were able to do it. But again, they started getting less and less people in the union. So they started allowing people's family members to join. They didn't have to be a card carrying member themselves. They could be a son of. Sounds fair. And, and that's But you had a lot of um, college level people baseball players doing this, professional, former pros who play these games. As far as I can tell, there's only one team still in existence that was part of the baseball league. 
and that is St. Louis's. They still have a Facebook oh, yeah. page and everything. And they play around oh, St. Fun. Louis area with other amateur leagues. And as well as they do, we'll do an exhibition at Bush Stadium on occasion. That's cool. So in 1990, like you mentioned, that's when they moved down to Florida. Then they came back to O'Fallon, Missouri. Now, let's talk about Pam's family. Pam was one of four kids born to Victor Joseph Newman Jr. and Shirley Mae Russell. Her siblings today are all married and still live in the St. Louis area. One in a nice West County neighborhood, one across the Mississippi in an Illinois suburb, and the last lives on a nice large property in St. Charles County. Hmm. Only one of the siblings was mentioned in the papers that I saw, and that was Michael that you had mentioned. And I keep getting the impression he doesn't think that his sister had did anything wrong, period, much less to his mother. And he, hmm. and this is where I think the nursing home might be reticent about sharing the evidence is because he filed a wrongful death suit against the retirement home. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it got put on. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. It got, you know, if you feel that, mm -hmm. you know, your sister didn't murder her. Yeah. Yeah. And now the suit got put on hold by a judge pending charges against Pam. But I don't know if that's still on hold or if it got dismissed. I haven't seen anything on that. So, but that's my guess as to why they're not volunteering it over. Yeah, that would make sense. We're going to start with Pam's mother's side, Shirley. Um, She was the daughter of Roy Viston Russell and Bernice Bertha McCormick. The theme for this whole part of the family is brick walls. There were several. And for those who don't know, a brick wall in genealogy means there's nothing. You're, You're drawing blanks. You're not finding stuff. It's very frustrating. Sometimes I have had family where you just sit on that brick wall for a long time until you finally get that little piece that's going to make the wall come down. But I did trace the Russells back to Lemuel Russell, who was born around 1787 in Tennessee. And that was Pam's fourth great grandfather. His son, Marcus Russell, married Elizabeth Betty Shelton in December 1837 in Dixon County, Tennessee. Her parents were William Shelton and Priscilla Mustaine, who originated in Pennsylvania, Virginia. William born in 1767 and Priscilla in 1779. That's about as far back as I got with the family, which is pretty good. I'm not doubting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Marcus died around 1858 and Betty still had five minors in the home. Three under ten. Oh, my gosh. One of those being Pam's second great grandfather, William Lemuel Russell was born around 1851. William married the daughter of Willis Lewis and Lucretia Dixon. And her name was Melinda Caroline Lewis. And she lived to be one old lady who liked to reminisce about the Civil War and how those damn Yankees ruined everything. Oh, my God. (laughs) Like they made me swear on, on the for the Union or they were going to hurt my daddy. Type, there was like there's a story oh in the paper and i didn't say it with any meaning to it i just did so we live oh my gosh and she was still pissed at the union yeah and melinda and william had five kids it would be their grandson roy who left tennessee first 
and settled in St. Louis. His father, Will Allen Russell, and his stepmother followed 20 years later. Now, Roy's mother was Dosia Edwards. She died when he was only four years old of consumption, or as we know it today, tuberculosis. Do you know why it was called consumption? Isn't it have some, doesn't it have something to do with the fact that it looked like they were being eaten from the inside or yeah, something? Yeah, it was like it consumed their whole body. I'm reading mm-hmm. a really good book right now. Um, oh, shoot. And of course, I'm going to blank on the name. The Great Influenza. It's about the Spanish flu. Ooh. And it gets into the history of medicine at the very beginning of it. Boy, I'm getting an education mm-hmm. on how lucky it is that I'm alive now, even though our healthcare system sucks. But... <laughs> Yeah, but did, no, I hear you. When people talk about, oh, I'd love to live in in you know days of yore, I'm like, mm, no penicillin, I want no part well, of it. You know, like the, <laughs> it wasn't until it was after 1910. Honestly, people, you, you you read just the first four chapters, you'll be shocked. You did not have to go to college to become a doctor. You never had to meet with a patient to be a doctor. You could hang up your shingle and you're a doctor or you didn't have to touch a body. Nothing. You would go like maybe to a couple courses to get into the medical school. And this is how you got into the medical school. You said you were going to pay the faculty their salary. And that's how you got in because that's how they, they earn their money they, by tuition. So they would get as many people they could so they could pay for their salary. And Yeah. And I'm just like horrified <laughs> going, oh, yeah. and, and it wasn't until there was this guy named, well, it was a combination of things, but there were people in the medical field in Europe that actually expanded everything. But the person in the U.S. who changed everything was a, a doctor by the name of William Welch, and he transformed our whole medical system. Thank God. Thank goodness. Yeah. Um, anyhow, sorry about going off on another tangent, but... Roy married Pam's grandmother, Bernice McCormick, in 1926, and they had at least three daughters. Now, Bernice's origins are a bit mysterious. I say that because this is where I hit every single brick wall I could. I found Bernice in the 1910 census living in Big Lake Township in Mississippi County, Arkansas. I even found her birth record showing that she was born on March 21st, 1910 in Manila, Arkansas which is in Mississippi County. The birth record told me that her parents were William A. McCormick, originally from Illinois, and her mother was Sarah Farmer from Indiana. So I knew that much. The 1910 census provided the name of her siblings and age of her parents. And some of that information was a little intriguing. I found that William was 48 and Sarah was 37. Bernice had two older full siblings, Maddie and Hubert. But Bernice also had three half-siblings, brothers, all with different surnames, leading me to the conclusion that this marriage to William was Sarah's fourth marriage. Interesting. Yeah. And they had only been married for nine years at this point. And they had three children. Is there any potential that they had adopted children? No. No, okay. because they got married in 1901 and all those ch- other children were born before then in different locations. And I, I, I tried to, I dug and I, I did find the following. 
because I thought I wasn't having any problem finding Sarah in her past marriages because she has these three half other children. So I would have, I'd be working with a clump. And when you do genealogy work, clumps are very helpful, especially if you have a couple different surnames in the family. So I looked for her in the 1900 census. I did not find her. I, in fact, I can only find one of Bernice's siblings after 1910. And it was her half sibling, Joseph Edward Johnson Sr. But I've not been able wow. to find William, Sarah, or anyone else in the family after 1910. Wow. When I say a brick wall, I mean like it's huge. That said, I was able to trace Sarah back a little. She was the eighth child, the youngest, born to Harrison Farmer and his wife, Sarah Gamble. She was Harrison's 12th child as he married Sarah Gamble after his first wife, Jane, died. Sarah Farmer first married James Fisher in Mount Vernon, Indiana, on August 29, 1887, at the age of 14. <gasps> no. Yes, her husband was twice her age. Oh, that's so gross. They had a son, Frank Fisher, in 1888 or 1889. And he, and Frank was born in Kentucky. And that's one of the children that was living with her in the 1910 census. Okay. I have no idea why the marriage happened so young or when it ended. But I was not, I have not been able to find James Fisher ever again. Again, another mystery. The second marriage happened around 1895 when she married Louis Johnson, a native of Sweden. And they had the son Joseph Edward Johnson in February 1896 in Stoddard County, Missouri. But again, Louis disappears. And now Sarah That's marries someone with Interesting. Yeah. And Sarah marries somebody with the last name of and the handwriting was really bad in the 1910 census, but it was like Henry or Denny or Henny. And anyhow, married him in 1899, and they had a son, John, around 1900. She got married around 1901 to William. Hmm. I have no idea who she married, what his first name was, nor have I been Where able... she was married and just had a baby and told people she was married. Yeah. That's possible, wow. too. And that's all I know about the maternal side of the family. I'd be wondering how many life insurance policies were involved in all and, of that. And that's what I find interesting. Because I do have the marriage record with um, James Fisher. I got the name of Lewis Johnson from his son Joseph's death certificate. But I couldn't find her other son, John, again. And part of the problem was the name was so hard to read. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was, the person transcribed it as Denny. And I'm looking, I'm like, that's not a D. That looks like an H. But then, a who knows? Mm-hmm. Okay. So that was the shortest maternal line I think I've ever gone over. Wow. Now, Pam's father, Victor, came from a long line of Victors. <laughs> he was actually the third in a row. Nice. That's convenient. Yeah. And he went by Junior. So. <laughs> and, okay, then. And, and that was the name his father went by until he gave birth to his, I mean, until he gave birth, until his wife gave birth to his son, Victor. Then he became Victor Sr. and his son was Victor Jr. It's very confusing. Anyhow. Um, Victor Jr. was born in 1932, the youngest of two children. 
Pam's father, Victor, attended Soldan High School, or Soldan Blewett. Today, Soldan is known as Soldan International Studies High School. But when it was being built, it was only the fourth public high school in St. Louis City. And it was called Union Avenue High School until it opened. Then it got its name. And it's four blocks north of Del Mar on Union. So during the 30s and 40s, it became known as the city's predominantly Jewish school. This is because there were a lot of wealthy and notable families from the Central West End who sent their kids to Soldan or made sure that their kids went there. Um, would be another way to put it. In fact, 90% of the student body in the 1940s when Victor attended were Jewish. Victor was not Jewish. He was Catholic. Mm -hmm. In 1951, at the young age of 19, Victor enlisted in the U.S. Marine Corps and served for one year in the Korean War. After he returned, he and Shirley married, starting their family of six soon after, having two boys and the two girls. Now, Victor was the grandchild of Austrian immigrants. His grandfather, Victor Newman, boarded the SS Hermann in Bremen, Germany with Johanna Newman, a woman who was 37 to his 21. So possibly an aunt, sister, or even a mother, if she had been very young when she started. But I wasn't able to find her again, just to say I saw some hints, but I had nothing confirming her. The ship arrived in New York City on October 2nd, 1889 at Ellis Island. From New York, Victor would make his way to St. Louis, and there he'd find a home in the north part of the city and work as a tailor. Victor got very involved in his community, which was filled with other German and Austrian immigrants, and the er the neighborhood he ended up moving to is a neighborhood called Hyde Park in St. Louis. Although, because there were so many German immigrants, the German immigrants called it Bremen. Hmm. Interesting. And did you know that it, it's a nationally registered historic district today? I did not know that. Yeah. I mean, it's had a decline, but I know some people have been trying to bring it back. It just takes time. So I spent many, many hours translating the local German newspaper to learn about him. And what I found is that he was looked upon with respect. He held leadership roles in different organizations, including a German-Austrian singing group. I love that. Yeah. It would. It was probably in his neighborhood where he met Anna Deutschitz. Anna was the granddaughter of Janos Tawich and Borbala Verde Pisces. And she was also an immigrant from Austria, um, from Pama, Austria, to be exact. Today, Pama sits very close to the borders of Slovakia and Hungary. Hmm. In fact, it's only eight miles to Bratislava, from the city center. That's how close. Hmm. At the time her family left, Pamela was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And it's likely they left for the United States to find farmland, but I'm not certain as to their reasons. Her town that she grew up, was born in and all that, and has a Hungarian name, a Slovakian name, and a German, uh, like an Austrian-German name. Oh, so wow. there's different things that you can call the area based on this. Anna was one of nine children born to Johannes Toyschitz and Anna Jankovic. Johannes, or John, was baptized in a Catholic parish near Pama in Kitsi, Austria, as were all of his children. The family did not come across on one ship, but staggered it in two ships in two different years. The first group likely came together in 1892, John and children Paul, daughter Anna, 
and Fabian. The next year, the mother, Anna, and the following children, Elizabeth, Stefan, John, and Ursula Helen, arrived in Montreal on the SS Pickhuben that sailed out of Hamburg, Germany. One child remained behind, or if he came over, he, he went right back at some point, and his name was Frank. Now, much like Victor, John Toyschitz and his children became active in their new community in the north section of their city, and many were members of the German-Austrian Workingmen's Society or the German-Austrian Benevolent Society, just to name a couple of them. Victor and Anna married in a double ceremony with her brother Fabian and his bride, Teresa Millerschutz, on July 21st, 1898, in a Catholic ceremony. And after the ceremony, they had a big party with friends and family. At least that's what I grasped from the announcement in the Westliche Post, um, the German newspaper. And I even found wedding pictures of the couples. They're, oh, they're uh, wonderful. When they married, Anna was 19 and Victor 34. Hmm. And you can kind of see that in the pictures that he's older and she's young. It was a first marriage and a last marriage for, for both. Oh, now, wow. let me tell you about the Westliche Post. It was a German language daily newspaper published in St. Louis from 1857 to 1938. It was aligned with Republican Party politics. And this is the Republican Party of anti-slavery, pro-civil rights, pro-immigrant. It was the second German newspaper in St. Louis, actually. <laughs> the first being Anzeiger des Westens, which means Gazette of the West. And that paper was founded in 1835. The two papers would end up merging in 1898. And it stayed with the name Westliche Post. An early club reporter at Westliche was Joseph Pulitzer in 1867. Only three years after he arrived at Boston Harbor from Hungary to fight for the Union Army. Wow. Yeah. He moved up in the world and bought the St. Louis Post-Dispatch in 1878. Wow. Yeah. I guess he must have sold it in 1883 as he headed east to New York and conquered the world there. And we all know Pulitzer Prize is named after Joseph. Victor and Anna had two children, Victor Joseph Newman Sr. and John F. Newman. Sadly, John died at the age of 29 of pneumonia. And after John died, he left behind his wife and four children. Victor Sr., like his father, got involved with his community as president of the Ashland Avenue Improvement Association. I found a few articles detailing concerns he and his neighbors had with the sewer system at the time. It kept being overwhelmed, and when it stormed, it would, like, create these floods, and sometimes people would get caught up in them and be swept away. They had at least two or three. Oh, my God. Yeah. And he was, at, you know, he was having taking meetings with the mayor to try to resolve the problem. Victor found success as a sheet metal worker early on and would end up working for Curtis Wright, at the time a large aircraft manufacturing firm located at Lambert Airport. In fact, in 1945, Victor was the president of the AFL Aircraft Workers Union, Local 710. But long before he headed his union or led his neighborhood association, he married Sylvia L. Jones in June 1922. I'm not certain how they met. Sylvia was born and raised in Franklin County, Missouri. And as of the 1920 census, she still lived there, an hour southwest of where Victor lived. 
However, she must have moved into the city or at least gone and visited somebody there and met Victor some at that point. Because I don't see him going out to Franklin County, Missouri. Victor and Sylvia would get to celebrate their 62nd wedding anniversary with their two children, Victor Jr. and Bernice, as well as their grandchildren and great-grandchildren before Victor died in 1984 at the age of 85. Sylvia would live for 15 more years, dying at the age of 96. Before I start on Sylvia's line, the Jones family, I thought I'd spend a few minutes discussing one person in Anna Deutsch's family. Um, as I mentioned earlier, she was one of nine children. I already mentioned her brother Fabian, where she had the double wedding with. But her oldest brother was Paul, who was born in 1872. Sometime around 1900, Paul married widow and mother of two children, Lucille Paradites, another Austrian immigrant. Um, Paul and Lucy, as she was known, had two children of their own, Anna and Joseph. Anna was a beautiful girl, born in July 1901. In the 1920 census, Paul worked at a lumber yard, son Joseph was an auto mechanic, and Anna was working as a seamstress at a local clothing store. Four years later, Anna was no longer sewing clothes, but modeling them for wholesale clothing dealers. Then on December 21st, 1924, 23-year-old Anna was dead. <gasps> yeah. That afternoon, a chauffeur for Melville Ackerman, Ben Burns, went into his boss's home through the back entrance. As he walked through the house, he smelled gas and then noticed two bodies, that of his employer, Melville, and that of young Anna Toyshitz. Yeah. Oh, no. Instead of contacting police, the chauffeur contacted Melville's father, Leopold, who came to the house and saw his son sprawled on the floor near a chair at a table and Anna, who was still sitting in her chair. The coroner was notified and an inquest quickly followed, like within a day. Oh, my gosh. Um, it was determined that the cause of death was death from asphyxiation. And officials thought their deaths were likely caused by gas fumes from a broken hot air furnace that was powered by gas burners. But why was Anna in the home of a married man with children? From the St. Louis Star and Times on the 22nd of December, 1924. Joseph Toyshitz, brother of Miss Anna Toyshitz, who with Melville E. Ackerman, 27, was found dead in Ackerman's home on the Clayton Road at 4.30 p.m. yesterday. Today asserted that Ackerman had proposed marriage to his sister and that she had accepted him. Ackerman had been taking Anna out for three years, said Toyshitz. She told me that they were going to be married. Anna did not know, and the family did not know, that Ackerman was married and had two children. <gasps> no. Yes. Yesterday, Anna told her mother that she was going to a party and would not be home until late. And then the story continues. And then it says, um, I haven't the slightest idea how Miss Toyshitz came to be in my son's home, said Leopold Ackerman today. I did not know her. I had seen her several times when she appeared as a model. Ackerman was married in 1917 and his bride died three months later. On July 3rd, 1917, he married Miss Nettie Greenblatt. Mrs. Ackerman is now in New York City, where she has been under medical treatment, according to the elder Ackerman. For that reason, he said, the Melville Ackerman home was for sale, and the Ackerman's two children, Leopold, three years old, and Lester, one, were staying with their grandfather. Mrs. Ackerman is expected to arrive in St. Louis tonight. Oh, my God. Yeah. 
But this is not the end of the story exactly. I found another article in the St. Louis Star and Times on January 29th, 1925. So a couple months later with the following headline, Model's Body and Ackerman Case Exhumed. Miss Anna Toyschitz was found dead in the home with clothing merchant. Verdict of coroner's jury was accident. Insurance firms have been probing tragedy. Secrecy guards an autopsy and cemetery association declines to reveal name of party asking inquiry. And the article went on to elaborate about the investigation, saying, um, it has been known for some time that the cause of death of both Miss Toyshitz and Ackerman was being investigated by insurance companies in which Ackerman carried insurance aggregating about $200,000. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Some of which one of the insurance companies wished to contest if possible. You see, this was a double indemnity insurance policy. So if it was oh, an wow. accidental death, they got double. An inquest was held at the time and an accidental verdict was returned. Secrecy veiled the action of the interested parties in exhuming the body of Miss Toyshitz and the identity of persons who performed the autopsy could not be established this afternoon. And they were never able to get anything on it. Um, a couple of quick notes. The address that was noted in the articles about where they lived is in Ledoux, which is a very nice neighborhood with large homes oh, and yes. huge yards. <laughs> and Quite posh, really. Yes. Um, the Ackermans were part of St. Louis society. His father's picture was even published in a book called Notable St. Louisans in 1900. Now, let's talk about Sylvia's side of the family. Sylvia being the wife of Victor Newman Sr., Pamela's grandmother. Of course, when I see the name Jones, um, fear runs through me as a genealogist. <laughs> but I was able to find them. Funny enough, there were not a lot of people with the surname Jones living in Franklin County before the 1900s. That helped a whole lot. <laughs> um, Pam's grandmother, Sylvia Jones Newman, was the sixth of 12 children born to William Levin Jones and his wife, Hetty Adeline Eakey, or Addie as she was known. William and Hetty married in 1891 in Rolla, Missouri, although they were both from Union, Missouri and Franklin County. Interesting. So, Zelda, when you mentioned that the Gumpberger, Gumpenberger, yes. Gumpenberger was from Union, Missouri, I was quickly getting on to see if I could find a family connection because they have deep roots in Franklin County, Missouri, and in mm -hmm. that area. So I'm like, hmm, I didn't find anything in such a short time, though. Okay. <laughs> now, Sylvia's ancestors were an interesting mix. On one side, there were enslavers. Mm -hmm. On the other, there was a soldier who fought for the Union. Mm, yeah. But they all came to exciting Franklin, Missouri for some reason. And met. <laughs> Today, Franklin is known as home to several wineries, a violent restaurant where they throw rolls at you, <laughs> and singer, actor, 80s heartthrob, Jack Wagner. I know this particular fact because in the 1980s, I watched him on General Hospital and drooled with my friends. We'd be on the phone going, <gasps> oh. <laughs> and when he came to St. Louis to perform Grease with the traveling company for Alma Muni, we were there. That is so funny. <laughs> oh my gosh. Is site is um Lambert's in Franklin County? It's Herman, Missouri. But Oh Herman is okay. Yeah, I don't think so, they So because the 
I think I had that wrong, but it was funny. So I'm going to keep it. It was really funny because I was like, wait, they're down in Sykeston. Yeah, you're right. ranch in Herman? For some reason, I keep thinking Herman has it. I don't know why. You know, Herman, Missouri, though, is so beautiful. Have you been? No. It's just these beautiful rolling hills. Mm -hmm. And I think St. James Winery's there. Um, But it's gorgeous. And I just have so many great memories. When I was first living in St. Louis, and my territory was all of Missouri, just like cresting the hill, the sun would be coming up, there'd be sunflowers, and it was just gorgeous there. So it's actually a touristy sort of place now. So please go. Okay. Um, Back on track. (laughs) I was able to find Addie Eakey. So this is um, William Levin Jones' wife, Addie Eakey's immigrant ancestor, John Eakey, who was born around 1745 in Ireland. He first settled in Pennsylvania before moving west to Ohio, where he and his wife, Mary, would raise their 10 children, including Pam's fourth great-grandfather, Andrew. It would be Andrew's son, Andrew Jr., who would leave Ohio in 1867 to settle in Franklin County, Missouri, with his wife, Jemima Barkhurst Eakey, and their 12 children. I mean, these are large families, but these are large, Mm -hmm. pretty much Catholic families, too. So there you go. I was lucky enough to find the wills for the immigrant ancestor, John, and also for Andrew Sr. And what I learned from that is this was not a family of poor, struggling immigrants. And at that time, you didn't have a lot of the Irish coming in the mid 1700s because they were struggling, just like you didn't have a lot of the the English who came over in the early days in the early 1600s were not usually struggling. But John was a landowner, one with an estate he was able to distribute to his family, giving each of his children. And remember, he had 10 children. He was able to give each of his children a substantial amount of money for the time. And his will was dated 1834. While Andrew didn't get the most, he did inherit $500 at his father's death. And Andrew Sr., who died in Steubenville, Ohio in 1874, was able to give each of his children a large amount, all receiving $500, except for one Andrew Jr., who only got $300. But perhaps he got less because he needed the money the least. Andrew Jr. was born in 1818, and I found him, his wife Jemima, and the children in the 1850 census that showed that he had real estate valued at $8,000. Nice. Yeah. In 1860, the value had increased to $10,000. After leaving Ohio, Andrew bought more land, worth $15,000 now, with a personal estate of $4,500 in the 1870 census. And he also did more than just farming. He worked as a prosecutor for Franklin County, Missouri. Andrew Jr. and his wife would raise 11 children before he died in 1889. Hmm. I found his obituary, which indicated an interest in politics and a longtime friendship with Edwin Stanton, friends since they were boys in Steubenville. And who is Edwin Stanton? Only the 25th United States Attorney General from 1860 to 1862, then the 27th Secretary of War from 1862 to 1868. Before his family left Ohio, Reason, an Ohio National Guardsman and Andrew's oldest child, was called into service with Company E of the 157th Ohio Infantry Regiment under Colonel George Wythe McCook, and he only served 100 days starting May 15, 1864 to September 2, 1864. His unit had two jobs, performing garrison duty in Baltimore 
then guarding Confederate prisoners at Fort Delaware. In 1869, Reason married Lizzie Wallace, the daughter of James Wallace, an Irish immigrant, and Anne Maria Webb, whose family was from Virginia before moving to Missouri in the 1840s. Their oldest daughter and second of 11 children would be Addie, Pam's great-grandmother, who married William Levin Jones. So we're back to the Jones. As I alluded to earlier, finding a Jones in the census is a challenge. Finding one who has a unique first name helps, though. And that's what happened with William's father, Levin D. Jones, who was often referred to as Eleven Jones. <laughs> and this was an interesting family. I even ran across different information in a tree that seemed to be researched by somebody who knew what he was doing. Mm. And so when I noticed that we had different things, I, I had to go and verify which one was correct. And I dug deeper and I it turned out I confirmed my own theory on who it was. And I did reach out to the owner of that other tree and he was wonderful. He was very receptive. He goes, yep, that makes total sense. And I sent him a link to some documents. He looked at me and goes, you're right. Thanks so much for letting me know. I told him about the podcast and stuff like that. And he's like, oh, cool. So if you're listening, oh, wow. thank you so much for um, talking to me as I was trying to figure that out. But that was a good genealogy day in my book. You can talk to somebody very and have a conversation. Cool. Yeah, because, you know, for all I know, I, I was pretty sure I was right, but I wanted to reach out because there could have been some detail I was missing. Mm -hmm. And so it worked out. But here's what I found. The Jones family were a slave owning family, originally from Maryland. They seemingly had no issue with slavery. I say that for a reason. I'll come up later. Levin was the son of Charles Jones, a lovely, easy name to research, um, who was born around 1785 in Virginia but moved to Maryland where he married Mary Linthicum in 1813. Charles and Mary had at least five children, including Levin and his brother Charles. And I found the family in Baltimore in the 1850 census, with Levin and Charles working as clerks and their father Charles Sr. working as a sailor. I don't know what happened to Charles, Mary, and their other three children after 1850. They were hard to locate because Charles Jones, Mary Jones, <laughs> come on. And and the one I talked to, he was still trying to find information. I mean, it's just, yeah. And I, I, I can relate because my maiden name is not an easy one to research. <laughs> um, however, son Charles, who was a year younger than Levin and was born around 1823, removed himself to Franklin County, Missouri in 1850. How do I know this? Because. Because I found him on the census there as well, a month later. And Charles was working as a lawyer in Franklin County, Missouri. Levin would follow his brother to Missouri later and would farm the land. And he, that's what he did. He was a farmer his whole life. He wasn't a lawyer like his brother. I found him living next to Charles in the 1860 census, unmarried at the time. Levin was already showing success. In Maryland, the family didn't own any real estate at the time in Baltimore. Um, but in Missouri, Levin had real estate valued at $5,000. And Charles, now married with two children, had real estate valued at $25,000. Quite the increase from yeah. $6,000 in 1850. Wow. Yeah. What really caught my attention, though, was the personal estates of both men. Because um, the census... In 1850, they just gave the real estate value. In 1860 and 1870, they asked for the real estate value and personal estate value. 
And Levin had an additional personal estate value of $4,000. And Charles had a personal estate of $25,000. And looking at those numbers, I suspected what it meant was they had slaves. Because when it's that high, it tells me they're owning people. So I looked at the 1860 slave schedule and found out I was correct. Levin, Pam's second great-grandfather, enslaved six people and had them relegated to one slave house. He reported having one female, age 28, and five males. I'll come back to what I found with Charles in a bit, but I was curious about how Levin's fortunes might have changed after the Civil War. I've noticed that many enslavers lost money because they lost their enslaved, the people they had in bondage. So they would leave, lose the value of their states and everything else. And sometimes they had to sell off their property. So when I looked at the 1870 census, I wasn't surprised to see that his personal estate had dropped substantially to $1,000. But his real estate value wasn't much different. Anyhow, Levin married Virginia Louisa Dickinson, or Jenny as she was known, around 1863 in Missouri. Jenny was 18 years younger than Levin, who was marrying for the first time at age 41. Yeah. So 23 year age difference there. And the couple would go on to have six children, the oldest being William Levin Jones. The one thing that stood out with the family was in 1880, they had a Lucy Jones living with them. And I want to know more about Lucy. (laughs) I do. She was a black woman born in Maryland who was 100 years old. I could not find any newspaper articles about it when she died or the fact that wow. she was 100 because of course they want to have featured it because how the pa- papers were there were hit and miss with black people sometimes. Yeah. Um, but it, it does make me wonder since she was born in Maryland, like the brothers were born in Maryland, if she might not have been a family slave at one point and came West. I don't know. And I tried to find more about her, but I didn't, and I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to include her on um, the part of our website dedicated to finding slave ancestors for anybody who that might be relevant for. Um, Levin died in 1900 at 77. His wife followed 11 years later at age 71. Now let's go back to Charles. I said we come back because he's interesting. We already established that he was a wealthy lawyer and he was political. He was elected as a state representative for the Missouri legislature in 1854, representing his community in Franklin County, a role he would hold for 19 years. Um, He even ran for the U.S. Congress in 1854 and 1860, but lost both times. In the 1860 slave schedule, I found that he enslaved 22 and had three slave houses on his property. And have you ever been to a, mm-hmm. seen a slave yeah. house in person? Zella? They're not very big. So I'm thinking that's seven per. Yeah. And that's really tight. It's not good. Then I stumbled on a letter he wrote in the middle of the Civil War. And it's a bit of a mess, kind of, in my mind. In one breath, he urges the emancipation of slaves. While in the next, he says, well, I'm not going to free all my slaves. For their own safety, I I think that was his meaning, but Mm -hmm. it's very paternalistic in that way. Uh, So there's a lot wrong with the letter in today's perspective, 
but I do wonder if he couched his words in a way that he thought would appeal to other Missourians, being a politician and all. So I'm going to read part of this letter, and it would, and I'll let you guys be the judge of this. And for some historical context, the Emancipation Proclamation was issued by President Abraham Lincoln to to. It was issued in 1862, but it wasn't to go into effect until January 1st, 1863. And it did not apply to border states like Missouri. This appeared in the Daily Missouri Republican on April 3rd, 1863. And this was a letter to the editor, basically. I propose to make a brief statement in reference to my views on emancipation. My principal property consists in slaves. In Maryland and Missouri, 50 in number. Of course, it would be unjust to myself and family to be subjected to total loss of them. (sighs) Nearly all of them I at different times have purchased at their own urgent request to prevent them from being taken out of Missouri. It is true that I acquired a few of them by inheritance. They never have been of much profit to me and perhaps upon a neat calculation might bring me in debt. I propose to say to them and to regard it as a contract between myself and each one of them that I will pledge myself to use every effort in my power to induce Missouri within the shortest time to pass an act of emancipation, giving freedom to the slaves and providing in conjunction with Congress, which can easily be done, reasonable compensation to loyal owners. I then pledge myself, in addition, that if Missouri and Congress shall fail to pass such an act about which I hardly think there ought to be a reasonable doubt, then, and in that event, all slaves of mine over 20 years and under 30, who shall faithfully perform service for four years, shall receive at my hands their emancipation papers. So he's saying we need to immediately emancipate these people, but if it doesn't happen, I'm going to keep mine on, you know, for four years. Those that are over 40 years old, while I live, I shall insist on their remaining on the farm for their own good. But in case of my death, shall leave it to their election to be free or slave. The condition of those under 20 years can be naturally inferred. And he goes on about how he thinks the government should pay each slave owner so much per slave as compensation to emancipate them. I have used my humble efforts to persuade the people of Missouri to stand by the government and the constitution of the United States and warn them on the stump and, and in the public prints of the evils of secession. My predictions have been verified. I occupy the same position today that I did at the inception of the rebellion. And I wish to leave my children no greater inheritance than that. They can say when I am gone that my father in the midst of this unholy rebellion stood firmly by the Federal Union and the Constitution of the United States. You will permit me to say that I have felt and do deeply feel for the calamitous condition of the people of Franklin County. Their slaves, for some cause or other, have been taking refuge in Washington and claiming to be free. This is simply, I think, a mistake, and I feel assured that immediate and suitable relief will be granted. I must say that and all grievances will be speedily redressed. And so that was his position on the issue of slaves in 1863. Yep. And it's a mess. Yeah. I mean, it, oh, let's emancipate. Not fitting conveniences me, you know. Wow. Exactly. And it's costing me money. It's putting me in debt. So what do you think? (laughs) Yeah. 
So I, I can't like him. I mean, I, I just can't. But <laughs> I just thought that was an interesting historical perspective on the time. Like his brother Levin, I was curious about how Charles's fortunes fared after the Civil War and found that there were no major issues, actually. In fact, he fared quite well. Um, again, in 1860, his estate and personal estate were valued at $25,000 each. Well, in 1870, Charles and his wife had left Franklin County and now lived in St. Louis. He had three domestic servants and one other servant living in the home. His real estate was now valued at $75,000 and personal estate at $50,000. Charles died on August 8, 1876 at the age of 53. Although his obituary claimed he was 63, which I suppose is possible, but other hmm, census records don't support that at all. <laughs> they all had him being born around 1823. So it, there could have been a mistake somewhere in there. And I don't know which one's exactly right. And being a smart lawyer, Charles left a very detailed will. It was a will that confirmed that Charles and Levin were brothers. And that was the evidence that we found to settle, you know, which Charles we were talking about <laughs> with the other um, genealogist. And oh boy, it was a fascinating will. Here's one part that grabbed my attention. To the following faithful servants who once belonged to me. I give and bequeath the respective sums named to each as follows to wit, to Frank, $50, to Gilly, $50, to Neonia, $100, to Anne, $50, to Lucy, $50, to Allie, $50, to Fanny Ann, child, $50, to Lizzie, Anne's child, $50, to Theodore, Maria's son, $50, and if Jane continues to work in my family until my death, I give and bequeath to her $150. All the foregoing legacies are to be paid out of my estate as soon as my debts are paid, hereby requesting that they be all paid as early as can safely be done hmm. after my death. I have, this is the first time I've seen a man leaving money to former slaves in a will. I don't think that necessarily redeems him. People change but it's over not time. a bad thing either. You know, maybe he started to really realize yeah. what a shithead he'd been earlier. Yeah. Now seems an appropriate time to tell you about Pam's granduncle, Charles E. Jones, brother of her grandmother, Sylvia Jones Newman. When I found his death certificate, I knew there had to be a story. Charles was born in Union, Missouri in October 1906. He died in the early morning hours of August 7th, 1944. Where? En route to the St. Louis mm. City Hospital. Why? Internal oh, no. hemorrhaging from a gunshot wound. Yeah. So I hoped I could find an article on what happened and lucked out. It was a story of murder and suicide. So this is a trigger warning for anybody who's listening if you need to skip forward a few minutes. And this is from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch on August 7th, 1944. So like I said, it was early morning hours. His um, time of death was like 1.30 a.m. Charles Edward Jones, a sheet metal worker, was shot to death and his wife, Jessie, was wounded seriously early today in the bedroom of their home at 4764 Cote Brillante Avenue by Amos Jeff Gilmer, the overnight guest of a neighbor who killed himself as police arrived on scene. 
Police said Gilmer, 44-year-old construction worker of Carrollton, apparently went insane. A total stranger to the Joneses, Gilmer was staying with his nephew, William E. Sutton. Mrs. Jones told a post-dispatch reporter at City Hospital that she and her husband were awakened about 1.20 a.m. by a noise at their front door. A moment later, she said a man entered the bedroom and fired several shots from a revolver. Two shots struck her, one in the chest and the other in the abdomen. Her husband grappled with the intruder while she fled into the bathroom with her two children. While she screamed for help, another shot was fired, she said. Police found Mrs. Jones kneeling beside her husband's body at the foot of the bed. Jones was shot below the heart. Seconds after police arrived, two more shots were heard. An officer found Gilmer's body on the porch of, S- of Sutton's apartment, a bullet oh wound in the God. head and a revolver at his feet. Yeah. The revolver contained two discharged shells and three other discharged cartridges were found by police on the back steps leading to the Sutton apartment. Sutton told police his uncle arrived in St. Louis about 5.30 p.m. yesterday from Hanford, Washington, where he had been working on an army project. He said Gilmer planned to take a midnight train to Carrollton, but he persuaded his uncle to stay overnight as Gilmer complained of a severe headache. Early this morning, Sutton said he was awakened by Gilmer looking for something in a closet. Asked what he was doing, Gilmer told his nephew, I'm going to end it all. Gilmer then ran to the rear of the apartment and killed himself, Sutton told police. Sutton said he didn't hear the shots fired downstairs in the Joneses' apartment. The revolver belonged to Sutton. Police said Gilmer apparently returned to the Sutton's place oh to get gosh. more bullets after shooting Those Jones and his wife. children. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah, Jones was 37 years old. His children are Roy, are oh my God. Geraldine, four, and Roy, 11. Those poor kids. It's terrible. Wow. And so random. Yeah. I mean. Very random. He didn't know them. He just found a house and just went in. It makes you wonder. I, I, I didn't have a chance to look him up, but I, I do wonder, was he in the military himself? Was there something that just yeah. triggered like a... PTSD. I don't know. Well, you know how I hate ending on a sad note like that. So I have some fast facts. Mm -hmm. So we talked about Soldan High School that um, Victor Newman attended in St. Louis. There are some notable people who actually went to that high school. Some before and some after Victor. Tennessee Williams attended for one year. Then he transferred to University City High School. Kay Thompson, author of the Eloise books. Actress Virginia Mayo. Former chairman of the United States Federal Reserve Bank from 1951 to 1970, serving under five presidents, William McChesney Martin. You'll like this one. (laughs) Miss St. Louis of 1926. Georgia Frontier, who is also a former owner of the Los Angeles Rams from 1979 until her death in 2008. That explains it. She inherited the team from her fifth husband, Carol Rosenblum. And some people question whether or not she had mm. murdered him at some point, I guess. There was like, huh. And possibly really? Agnes Moorhead. Huh. But I don't trust Wikipedia on that one. Because it has it on the school mm-hmm. page that Agnes Moorhead went there. But then when you go over to her page, it says huh. she went, she claims she went to Central. High school. So, I don't know. 
And one more thing, we talked about how important uh-huh. it is to know where you went to high school in St. Louis. There is, I found in the Riverfront Times in 2012, there's an article where you should have gone to high school in St. Louis. And oh it has gosh. a whole flow chart <laughs> of where you should go. And now it doesn't have all the high schools in the area. I mean, there's some that are missing that I could tell, but it's pretty funny. So let's see where <laughs> Zelda should have gone to high school. Yeah. Are you Catholic? Yes. Are you one of 11 children? Um, one of six. Zelda. <laughs> so we'll no. say no. You're not a dude. So are yes. your parents terrified of laying you out in the city? No. Were you considered hot in high school? Yes. Are you, were you considered holy? Then you I should have attended like Immaculate Conception. For me, there I you go. Immaculate Conception. So... That would be funny. And, you know, I hear Corey oh, that's funny. is pretty cool, too. How about you? What was your answer? I can't remember. <laughs> now I got to go back because I did do this um, when I first found this. And I, I was not Catholic. So I had to go down to the next page. <laughs> My dad is not a lawyer. Do you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Well, in high school, I would have said no. Are you Jewish? No. Are your parents willing to pay the equivalent of a Toyota Prius every year to send you to high school? No. <laughs> did you grow? Did you grow up in the city? No. Were there cows nearby? No. <laughs> Are your parents rich? No. Do you mind oh being God. educated by felons? Yes. And and if you answered no, it would say you go to Riverview Gardens. That's so interesting. Funny. <laughs> And are your parents planning to move to St. Charles? Uh, yes. Um, so I would have gone to Normandy. That's so funny. Okay, uh, I had to look this up because I'm like, so this I, is too good. This is an excellent quiz. Mm-hmm. Highly recommended to everyone. Um, it's riverfrontdimes.com. I'm not going to read it. It's a PDF. <laughs> but if you... Oh, awesome. Yeah. I'm going to include the link um, on the webpage you, too li- so you can Google go to it. Riverfront Times <laughs> High School Quiz, it'll pull it up. Um, this is hilarious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm like, okay, how did my people end up at court? I thought you would enjoy that. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that was the family tree of Pamela Marie Newman Hupp as you try to figure oh out how gosh, your friends so ended fun. up there. <laughs> um, now, it, the first question, you know, the second question after you Catholic, you know, are you one of 11 children? Uh, my my cousins were only one of four, but they oh, all went to Bishop so DeBerg, funny. which is what they said. Oh my gosh. <laughs> one of 11. Who? And you know who else went to Bishop DeBerg and went was in the graduating class Tell with me. my cousin? They actually knew each other. Jack. Oh, really? Jack as in Twitter Jack. That's what You know, I knew he was from St. Louis, yes. but I didn't realize that, that um, he was Catholic. Yeah, he was a DeBerg student, and they um, apparently went down a couple d- double dates. Back Speaking in the day. of microphones, have you seen? Understand. Of course, you've seen the TikTok of "Stop Giving Men Microphones." Have you seen that? I I think I sent you one of those every at one, one point. Of those. Yes, everyone. I love her. Feature some. Yeah, jackass saying something so jackassery, other jackasses would be embarrassed. 
usually a, yeah, a male exactly. podcaster who's decided to talk you know? about women. And then she pipes in, stop giving men microphones. Okay, I shouldn't sing because it's awful. <gasps> Is she? I She's will releasing totally the song too, where you can download it. Because it's like... She is so just spot on. Mm-hmm. God love her. Well, this has been an up and down roller coaster yeah. of a story. We've had murder. We've had mayhem. We've had murder suicides. We've had um, uh, just this incredible rich history, which sometimes we get and sometimes we don't. So this was kind of exciting. Yeah. And then, you know, mm-hmm. there was some great wealth in this family. This is not a family like others mm-hmm. we've had where they were all like struggling. I don't get the impression her family struggled all that much. Yeah. They were at least middle class, you know, the whole way through. And yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. That well, and she I came out from their all that. Do well. I hope that because this has to be mm-hmm. traumatic. Yes. For every child involved. And I just can't even imagine. Exactly. And I did look up, um, her son and saw his uh, Facebook page. <laughs> I'm so nosy. And he seems to be doing okay, but you know, that's surface level stuff. And uh, yeah. So I hope so too. Cause that's, that's hard. Yeah. When it's your parent. And I mean, we've talked about this before time and again, it's, it right. doesn't just affect the family right. of the person who's murdered, but how it affects the family Absolutely. of the murderer is different. Well, Denise, thanks for all of your amazing information today. So, this is very cool. Oh, you are quite welcome. And do you want to know who we're going to talk about next? If we, I mean, I think the crossover might be happening first. And I just need to finish up a few details on that. But our next one coming up is, oh, where did I put that? We're going to be covering the mysterious death of it's an unsolved murder of Catherine Diane Mowry and it was requested wow. by her niece for us Very to cover cool. her and her niece has done a lot of the legwork for me already she's already done yeah. a lot of the trees so I'm gonna go in and see if I can find anything else interesting and it's trying to get the her name Excellent. out there so this it can be exciting I'm glad we're doing that so So that's coming up soon, and we hope you join us where murder and family meet. If you enjoyed our discussion on murder and family, we would love it if you would subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. You could also help support our podcast by becoming a patron on patreon.com slash murderousroots. For more information on this episode and past episodes, as well as merchandise, just go to our website at murderousroots.com. And of course, you can also find us on social media at Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and even on TikTok. Thanks, everyone.